It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Know your times. Good morning. It's Thursday the 27th of February. You're listening to Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. Coming up, everyone in Britain will be told they have a duty to wash their hands and to use tissues when they sneeze and cough uh, to prevent the spread of coronavirus in a new public information campaign. By the way, you should have been doing that already, folks. Also, the Prime Minister has committed to an extra £236 million to help get rough sleepers off the street. I'll be speaking to the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, in the next hour about that. And students will receive university offers only after their A-level results in Rad reforms being talked about for the university admissions system. Plus, I'll get the latest from Shropshire after an emergency evacuation took place in Ironbridge overnight as rising waters on the River Severn overwhelmed the town's flood defences. Five minutes past seven is the time. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer. Weekday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. What's going to be happening in the budget coming up in a couple of weeks' time? Uh, We had a little bit of an inkling of the uh, pressures that the, uh, uh, the new Chancellor Rishi Sunak is under when we had Sajid Javid, the former Chancellor, who decided to resign rather than uh, see his uh, Treasury team basically submerged into the number 10 uh, financial team uh, in some sort of new joint number 10, number 11 operation. And the hints that he made about, well, sticking to some of those fiscal rules about balancing the budget, certainly over a minimum three-year period. Well, the question is, what is going to be spent? How much is going to be spent? On what? And... um. How are you going to pay for it? Well, Paul Johnson is director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, the uh, think tank that yesterday suggested that really there is no way uh, that the government can actually reach any of its spending plans without raising taxes. Uh, Paul Johnson joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. So um, you, you did say ahead of the general election, you did an analysis of both Labour and Tory spending plans and uh, you did highlight uh, the huge uh, tax requirements of uh, the Labour Party's plans, but also that the Tory party couldn't possibly have costed all of their spending without tax rises. Um, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Well, that depends on where the government wants to go. The um, the, the Conservative manifesto, um, as we said at the time, was actually incredibly empty in terms of what it said it was going to do. Yes, lots of money there for investment, building roads or houses or hospitals or what have you, because they're allowing themselves to borrow to invest. But they're saying they want, as you said, to balance the budget Otherwise, 
and the budget is right now just about balanced uh, what does that mean that means that there's no space to increase spending on on education or health or local government or social care or anything like that unless they either decide to raise taxes or say well look we we told you in the manifesto we were going to balance the books but actually actually we've decided a couple of months later we're not going to or and they could just decide well you know austerity in a sense carries on because we're not going to be able to raise spending on all of these other things and they didn't say that they would but they really did give the impression that they would well they certainly did give the impression that they would and we all know whenever there's more spending on on any particular item in government spending it either means something else is getting cut or it means that taxes are going to go up Uh, what sort of numbers are we talking about because you in your report yesterday said that if Rishi Sunak decided to leave current policy uh, spending unchanged just carried it on the government would have to borrow some 63 billion pounds next year and that's 23 billion pounds more than the most recent official forecast it is a huge sums of money they, they are they are big sums of money. I mean, they're sort of not out of line with where we've been historically. And of course, they're way below where we were back in 2010 when we had um, peacetime record uh, levels of borrowing. But the problem for the government is that that 60 billion or so of borrowing is, is, is just bang on the maximum that they said that they will allow themselves so uh you know if they if if they do anything more at all then not only does that 60 billion pound number become bigger but i think possibly even more uh, worrying is that the outstanding level of debt the accumulated debt that we've got really does start to grow and another thing that they've said is that they want and this is something that um, Sajid Javid said very clearly yesterday is that he thinks it's very important that the government uh, at the end of this parliament that the overall level of debt is less than it was at the beginning well if you start borrowing more and more then they're not going to achieve uh, achieve that either I, I, the, I mean the truth is we, we just don't know what this government wants to do or what yeah. direction it's going to go in and we I think we'll find out hopefully we'll actually find out quite a lot about the direction of the government in a couple of weeks when we get this mm. budget and, and we know of course an awful lot of the budget is going to be directed by what uh, the number 10 wants uh, and again I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this this big battle between you know independence of the treasury something that uh, the uh, outgoing chancellor Sajid Javid had to say in his statement after prime minister's questions yesterday and and how much we have to accept the fact that we you know the official title of the prime minister is first lord of the treasury Fundamentally, it makes sense, does it not, for the Treasury and Number 10, whichever party they are, to be on the same page? Well, it certainly makes sense for them to be uh, pretty much on the on, on the same page. And I think the slightly strange thing is that one never really got the impression that Sajid Javid was on a particularly different page no. to uh, to where the Prime Minister was. But uh, he seems to be um, looking for people to be on precisely the same line on the same page. I mean, you know, over time, chancellors and Prime Ministers, there tend to have been tensions. It was it was quite interesting. Um, just a couple of days ago, one of the things that um, Ed Ball said, the formula, former uh, Labour shadow chancellor who worked very closely with Gordon Brown. Now, of course, we know that Gordon Brown and uh, Tony Blair had their big differences, but one of the things that Ed Balls said was that one of the one, one of the things that that meant was that each of them stopped the other doing silly things. So, you, you, I mean, you do need, um, you know, you you need people to stop the Treasury doing silly things. I mean, you also need people to stop Number Ten and the Prime Minister doing silly things. Yeah. If you have a single point of power in government, then the chances of getting something horribly wrong are much bigger yeah. than if you've got two or three people who are 
actually challenging each other. Yeah, we've, we've, we've seen things go horribly wrong enough times before, but the key thing is we have been in such unusual times, haven't we? When we compare to you know, spending and borrowing levels in 2010 and, and the austerity years since then, these are un, you know these have been a very unusual times. We really need to go back to sort of you know the mid 2000s or late 2000s uh, before the crash, before we get back to normal levels. And whatever the amount of spending we're talking about, although perhaps excluding HS2, we are we are not talking about historically high levels of spending. Just basically replacing the money that was lost in the austerity years. No, we, we, we really are in, in, in strange times. I mean, it has been amazing the scale of um, cuts to most areas of government spending over the last decade. I mean, one of the things that's surprising, though, given all of that, is that the size of the state, so the chunk, the, the amount of the economy that goes on public spending is essentially the same today as it was back in 2008, after 10 years of Labour government. And, and, and the reason for that is that the, the amount of the money that's going in particularly to health and pensions has risen a lot over this period because you know, the health service in particular continues to suck in money despite the fact that you know, it, it still seems to, uh, seem, seems to be struggling and there's less money for pretty much everything else. And I think one of, the, you know, one of the longer term challenges is that if we continue, as I'm sure we do need to, to fund health, pensions and social care and so on, there will be less for other things unless we decide that we're happier uh, with a bigger state altogether. Um, and uh, just finally, um, fuel duty has been the news, the possibility of fuel duty going up. Are we in another one of those sort of manipulations of the media and uh, MPs and indeed motorists where there's talk about fuel duty going up and so on the day the Chancellor can say, and despite all the pressure, I'm not going to put fuel duty up and that gets the headlines? Or do you think they actually are going to put it up? Well, it wouldn't be surprising if it's uh, if it's one of these things where he, he says you know, exactly as you as you put it. I mean, it has been a, a, another a, a amazing thing. Um, fuel duty hasn't risen with inflation at all over the last ten years, so that means its real level relative to other prices is a lot lower than it was a decade ago. And this is this means that we're paying uh, between us six billion a year less in fuel duty than we were a decade ago and put it another way that's a six billion a year cost to the government of not having maintained its mm. uh, its level relative to uh, relative to inflation and you know, in a world in which supposedly we're committed to getting to net zero carbon emissions where we you know we're going to have to stop burning fuel at all that's you know that's a real tension between the politics yes. and the um, I, I want, uh, and some of those I want to ask you I like the use of the word supposedly because these are completely uncosted aren't they whenever we talk about these things even if we talk about HS2 and the cost of that or any money for, for for nursing, for, for for policing or whatever. These figures are dwarfed to a huge extent by uh, the government pledge uh, to get to net zero emissions by uh, 2050. Uh, we had some figures out from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I mean, they, they come certainly from one political stance rather than any other, but uh, they're suggesting we could look in, you know, even in just a couple of sectors, the region of three trillion pounds for the cost of this. A lot of these, these this policy is completely uncosted so far, isn't it? Well, I think we have some idea about what the cost is of getting to net zero. I mean, you know, I mean the world does need to do this, and the UK needs to it. to play its uh, to play its part. But the cost—I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. The cost is significant, um, uh, and could certainly well be in excess of a trillion pounds over this period. And that is an awful lot of money. Now, and we need to think very carefully about who's going to to pay that. And 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 actually, the scale of change is really big. I mean, that means. Everyone has to be driving an electric car. No gas central 
uh, no gas central heating, a complete change to the way that we're using um, land and um, and all those sorts yep. of things. So the scale of the change, and you're right, the cost is really very significant. And if, if, if the government is really serious about this, it needs to be putting these plans into place okay. really very quickly. Paul Johnson, always a pleasure to speak to you, sir, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Thank you very much indeed. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley-Brewer and The Times. Know your times. Good morning to you. This is Talk Radio Breakfast with me, Julia Hartley-Brewer. Still with me, Benedict Spence and Benjamin Butterworth. I should have to be joined by the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick. We found you at long last. Hello, good morning. Good morning. I know you've been running a little bit late with lots of interviews this morning. Well, you're talking about today a pledge from the Prime Minister of almost uh, well, £236 million, uh, almost a, a quarter of a billion pounds, uh, to try to end rough sleeping once and for all. How are you going to do it? Well, absolutely. We've made a commitment in our manifesto to all but eliminate rough sleeping over the course of this parliament, and we're determined to do it. The Prime Minister and I have made it personal priorities of ourselves. This extra funding builds on uh, over £400 million we've already committed for this coming financial year. But this extra money will have a real impact because it's going to provide 6,000 additional units for people to move into after they've come off the streets. And it's in these homes that they'll be able to get wraparound care to tackle other issues that they might have, like mental health and addiction problems, and help to reintegrate in society and rebuild their lives. We are making progress, albeit from a low base. So last year we saw the first fall in rough sleeping for a long time after a number of years in which it rose. The figures that are, come, are going to come out later today, I'm hopeful, will show a significant further fall. There's a number of local authority areas who have already reported their statistics, like Manchester, for example, and they showed a significant fall. So it appears as if we're starting to move in the right direction as a country, but there's clearly a lot more to do. And this extra funding, we've also announced that Dame Louise Casey, one of the country's foremost experts in this field and a very independent-minded person who supported the last Labour government, is going to come back to government to advise us and to help us to bring together, for the first time, all parts of government, not just housing, important though that is, but also health and the criminal justice system, so we can really tackle this in a coordinated way. Well, exactly. Dame Louise Casey was, uh, as she, you know, very, very crucial to the attempts to bring down rough sleeping in previous years of the last Labour government. Uh, but it did rise uh, in the austerity years. And we know that it's not necessarily just about funding, not just about availability of homes, uh, because often not, you know, be living, sleeping on the, the streets is, is a symptom of problems rather than often the cause of people's problems. So uh, you, putting that wraparound care in it is very crucial. But a lot of people might be saying, look, this is a little bit too little too late and although obviously a lot of people would understand the need for the austerity years post uh, the financial crash that um, this is exactly the sort of area where um, we've seen you know victims who've not got the help they've needed because there hasn't been the money you haven't provided the money to local councils uh, under either the Cameron or Theresa May uh, governments and you haven't provided enough funding for those outreach programs to keep those people off the streets so a lot of people say well this is all very well now but but where was the Tory government over the last 10 years? Well, this new administration, led by the Prime Minister and with me as Housing Secretary, have made this an absolutely core commitment, something that we were willing to be personally responsible for and held to account for, because I do think it is a, a moral shame that you walk the streets of cities like London, you know, some of the world's most prosperous and successful places, and we see too many people sleeping on the streets. The interventions that we've made in the last couple of years do appear to be working. 
in the communities where we've been investing, we're seeing falls in rough sleeping of around 30%, sometimes more, and I hope the figures out today will confirm a wider reduction across the country. But clearly, it, there's a huge challenge ahead of us, and I'm not at all complacent about the scale of that or the complexity of it. It is partly about money, and I think we are putting the right resources in place now. But it's more than that. It's seeing this in the round, uh, trying to prevent people getting onto the streets in the first place. And then when they do find themselves in those circumstances, having the good quality supported housing that they need, that's what this funding is going to go to, but also the addiction, the mental health support as well in place. Okay. And that's what we're going to try to do um, now as a government, in a way that no previous government has done in the past. Uh, and although it's one of the big social challenges, I also think it is soluble. We've made major uh, improvements in the past. Louise Casey, as you say, helped to do that under the last Labour government. Internationally, there are examples of cities and countries taking this seriously. I want us to lead the way globally on this and this to be something ultimately we can be very proud of in years to come. OK, let me also ask you about flooding. Uh, accusations at Prime Minister's question time from the uh, Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, that uh, we've got a, a part-time Prime Minister. He was offered his uh, country retreat rather than actually uh, going to visit people who were afflicted by the flooding. We've had uh, overnight, we've had more people evacuated from their homes after the River Severn uh, burst its banks. Um, shouldn't the Prime Minister have turned up? He turned up during the election campaign. Doesn't it look like that he's got the votes now? He doesn't really care about people. Well, the Prime Minister's approach is that he empowers ministers to take responsibility for their briefs and get out and do the right thing. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Environment Secretary, George Eustace, is leading on this. And as Community Secretary, I'm responsible for the recovery efforts once the worst of the emergency situation uh, is over. And that's exactly what we're doing. We've put in place financial support for individuals and businesses who've been affected, like £5,000 per property to make your home more resilient, council tax and business rates. Uh, relief. So if you're out of your home or your business premises, you shouldn't be paying those taxes. We're also investing more in the longer term in flood defences. And it's very important that we do that now with climate change. It's clear this is going to be a persistent and rising problem in the future. But look, uh, over 100 homes in my own constituency in Newark and Nottinghamshire were flooded. And whilst, of course, there will be some people who would like to meet a politician and shake their hand, in my experience, most people are more concerned with is the government taking the action that's required and in the moment, that's ensuring that there isn't a risk to life, working with the emergency services. And then once we move into the recovery phase, which I'm responsible for, it's ensuring that the correct resources are in place to local councils, the environment agency and individuals so they can begin to rebuild their lives. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Uh, coronavirus, yeah, front page of an awful lot uh, of the papers today as we have seen the spread around the world of the coronavirus. We're now looking at 40 different countries around the world, every continent affected other than Antarctica, largely because, well, let's face it, barely anyone actually lives there. We are now seeing greater spread of the disease outside of mainland China than uh, in mainland China, uh, which, of course, is now raising concern. Um, but there are still concerns that uh, it's now spread uh, to so many countries within Europe uh, that uh, we've seen, of course, in northern Italy, the powerhouse of the Italian economy, uh, basically set under major quarantine and concerns, of course, that this could affect the world economy. We were speaking about that a little bit earlier. But what about uh, future travel plans? We've seen uh, rugby matches, football matches, uh, threat to the Grand Prix, threat to even the Japanese Olympics uh, this summer. Uh, let's talk about all of this with Simon Calder, who's travel editor for The Independent. Good morning to you, Simon. Julia, hello. hello. I'm here at uh, Manchester Piccadilly Station. Very, very busy. Lots of people travelling to lots of places. And indeed, um, looking at the overall risks, while I absolutely sympathise with a large number of people who've been in touch with me saying, help, we really don't want to travel to Italy or the Canaries or whatever. Actually, statistically, there's never been a better time to be a traveller. And my goodness me, you should see the amazing deals that are out well, there. Well, I, I, um, I was just thinking that's probably the case. My husband and I have got a weekend with the little ones off on a uh, on a school trip and I'm thinking, oh, we can go somewhere. Let's, oh, let's pop to Italy. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. maybe not this time um, round. But you're saying, actually, this uh, is um, the no. ideal time. But, Mark, this is the thing. It's one thing you may be able to get a nice deal, but if you then come back from an area that has faced quarantine, you're perfectly fine, but you have to take two weeks off work self-quarantined. It might end up being rather an expensive breakaway. Uh, most definitely. I mean, and rather like the virus itself, um, sentiment among people is mutating. So um, a week ago, I was getting lots of uh, people getting in touch on social media saying, um, help, um, I, I don't want to go because I think, you know, I'll go to Asia, I'll catch the coronavirus, I'll catch the coronavirus, then I'll die. 
Uh, and those, yeah. those two possibilities are both uh, extremely unlikely, multiply them together and they're vanishingly small. However, um, I have uh, a lot more sympathy with people. Pe perhaps they've got a small business they're running. Perhaps yeah. they've got uh, family members who depend on them, as you do. And the last thing they want to do is to be in any kind of lockdown. So that is a, a concern. But I still think that's a small risk. And I still think, and you were talking about this actually earlier before the news, you were saying, you know, people don't practice personal hygiene well enough. Let's hope that a good thing that comes out of this whole miserable business is that people learn, yes, keep washing your hands. Yes, um, I, I have to say... I, I do have a theory that actually we're going to see fewer cases of flu and fewer colds and days off as a result of that in this country because people are being better about doing it. Just some breaking news in the last minute. In fact, two more patients in England have just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, the Department of Health has just confirmed that brings the total number of UK cases to 15. But of course, we know that, I mean, eight of those uh, 15 have already been, uh, been in hospital and they've already been uh, released from hospital absolutely fine. So we, we, we are... Are, you know, we are. We have to, as you say, be realistic. Certainly, you know, the death rate under. If you're under 50 years old, the death rate is below 0.5 percent. It's absolutely tiny. It's only people who are very elderly, already have respiratory problems, who who are where we're seeing that death rate from. But in terms of where someone might want to go, I mean, again, if you're someone's wanting to travel to Wuhan, a, I don't know why you would do that. Looking at the pictures, looked pretty horrific anyway. But but yeah. if travelling to mainland China, travelling to say Malaysia, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, uh, obviously people would have concerns there uh, about travelling somewhere that far uh, with this with this disease spreading. But now it's in Italy, now it's in France, now it's here in the UK. I suppose you know it's, it's, it's the same as people saying, I won't go somewhere because there are terrorist attacks there. Well, yes, likewise, there are terrorist attacks in Britain and we still stay here. Uh, look, I think these are really, really important points, um, Julia. Uh, I think in time, and it may only be a couple of weeks, this will become normalised. And obviously, there will be great concern, exactly as you say, about the people in the risk groups. But I'm, I've been following uh, the local media in Singapore, um, a place where lots of people have concerns about visiting. They've got 93 cases there. Every day, the local paper says, well, yesterday, four people were discharged and two more people showed up with the virus. And They've got a little graph of what's happening, um, but people are now thinking, well, you know, we could suspend uh, normal life or we could just get on with it uh, because people, you know, very sadly, the vulnerable, uh, some of them are dying and that's absolutely awful. But the vast majority of people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad cold or, or whatever, and then they're, they're back uh, uh, in, into normal life. So I think uh, beyond a certain point, people will just say, oh, well, it's here. It's unpleasant. We yeah. wish it wasn't here, but we're going to carry on. Um, and my, my message is, well, particularly for you and your husband, uh, crikey, <laughs> £139 each tomorrow, flying out of Heathrow, British Airways. Yes, you can check in a 23-kilogram bag. You go to Venice. You stay in a four-star hotel three nights, including your breakfast in the middle of Venice. And as I've just been hearing from my contacts there, it's a fantastic time to be for there. For £139? Um, uh, quid? Each, yes. But, but even I mean, so, that's, each, that's, wow. Yeah, so that's, that, that's about that, as cheap um, as a travel is, lodge in Swindon. Uh, well, quite. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's going to take you, th uh, so so um, uh, tomorrow night all the way through to uh, to Monday morning, you'll, you'll have a fantastic time. Um, and uh, lots of, well, sorry, not lots of people, but um, contacts in Italy say it's a fantastic time to be there because everything is empty. 
you know, Vatican museums in Rome, the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Just walk in and... Um, you can take advantage of it. Yourself. Well, that's interesting. I'm just yes. going to get people up to date on just that breaking news that two more patients in England have tested positive for coronavirus. That brings the total to 15, although, bearing in mind, eight of those people have been discharged from hospital. Perfectly fine now. Uh, it's understood they have contracted the virus, one in Italy, one in Tenerife. Of course, two areas, northern Italy, we know, and Tenerife, where, of course, we've got uh, about 100-odd patients, 100-odd, sorry, um, holidaymakers from Britain in that hotel uh, who have been uh, quarantined. Uh, one of those patients is now in the Royal Liverpool Hospital, another in the Royal Free Hospital in London. Um, just want to ask you also, Simon, what about people though who say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit wary, I don't want to be travelling, I've, I've got something booked, I've got a trip booked in a couple of weeks' time, either to, you know, to Singapore or, yep. or Mainland China or, or to Northern Italy. Um, I want to cancel it because I'm worried, not necessarily about contracting coronavirus, but being quarantined and being off work for a couple of weeks and the impact that'll have on my, as you say, my work or, or my family. What, can, what rights do they have? Because there's no formal foreign office advice you know non you know nothing but non-essential travel is there are you entitled no, um, to your the, travel the, insurance uh no the best assumption the best place to start is that you have exactly no rights i'm sorry to sound harsh but that's the realistic picture um there may be there's a few few cases so for example um if you booked uh, a trip to Dublin for the um, for the rugby match, which has now been called off, um, and you booked a package which specifically says I, you're going to give me a match ticket and a hotel and a flight. Then you can claim the money back because obviously the purpose of your trip was to go to the rugby. Ah, oh, but most people uh, now they, don't do those package deals, no, course, do they? No. So, so therefore, the airline's going to say, well, your flight's still there, um, your hotel's still there. The fact you don't want to be there isn't our problem. And the same will apply on holidays to the Canaries. Um, to Italy, um, anywhere that you want to go, they are basically taking the view, most of them, just normal terms and conditions apply. They are, uh, of course, um, the airlines are thinking of their, their staff and their shareholders, quite possibly not in that order, um, and they are going through an absolutely miserable time. So um, uh, they're just thinking, well, you know, we, we, in an ideal world, of course, we'd be flexible, but it's not ideal. We're yeah. losing a fortune yeah. and therefore we're going to be strict. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much indeed, Simon. I have to say that a little trip to Venice is looking very nice. I've just come back from holiday. I can't go on another one. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Good morning to you. This is Talk Radio Breakfast with me, Julia Hartley-Brewer. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Uh, well, uh, we've had big decisions on other major infrastructure projects like uh, uh, the HS2, £106 billion is the latest possible uh, cost for that. But um, yet still, to see, it seems, to make any progress on another project that has been on the offing for many, many more years, even than HS2. I think it's I think it's we're into 50, 60 years now, the prospect of a third runway at Heathrow. Well, uh, Boris Johnson was last night urged to bury his doubts and press ahead with Heathrow's third runway amid fears that he could use a potential legal setback today to ditch the plan. Well, London Mayor Sadiq Khan and other opponents of the airport expansion scheme are expected to find out today from the High Court whether they've won their challenge against the government over the £14 billion project. Uh, the London Mayor and five local authorities in the capital launched an appeal after judges gave the new runway the green light last year. 
Apparently the case is hanging on whether or not the impact of emissions from extra air traffic has been overlooked or not. If, however, their High Court challenge is successful, the project would effectively be blocked unless or until the government responds. So is this a get-out clause for the Prime Minister who said, let's not forget that he would be lying in front of the bulldozers uh, if uh, that went ahead. Uh, let's uh, talk about this with Leo Murray. He's co-director of the Climate Campaign Group, Possible, and joins us now. Good morning to you, Leo. Morning, Julia. Um, now, I mean, this High Court challenge, it's, it's the, the latest of many uh, challenges which have been brought on a number of different bases, whether it's uh, environmental concerns, whether it's on pollution yeah. concerns, noise, uh, disruption to local residents and the like. Um, is this the key factor then, is whether or not it's the impact of emissions from extra air traffic and therefore really it's, it's the pollution issue this time around? It is fundamentally a pollution issue. There is another challenge also being heard today um, from one of the rival proposals for expansion at the airport. They're, they're challenging the legality of the process of the decision. That's not really the, <laughs> the plot thickens. The interesting point here is, is, is around emissions, and there are, there are two strands to that. There's, there's air quality emissions around the airport, which already breach legal levels. Um, and then there is the impact of expansion on the UK's ability to meet our climate change targets. Oh, um, yes, because the people who want yeah. to uh, have net zero carbon want us to go back to the Stone Age, don't they? Uh, no. And when you say the people who want us to have net zero carbon, you are talking about the UK government there. And, yeah, uh, I know. And the vast majority <laughs> of the British public. Oh, no, not so, the vast majority. No, no, the vast majority of the British public haven't been told what it actually means. Most people haven't got a clue. When you actually tell people what it actually means, I do try to do on my show on a daily basis, people go, uh, no thanks, not for me. I don't I don't think you really understand what it actually Don't I? Means. So, you know, Explain no, not, to me. I've, I've heard some of the things which you have to say about it. And, uh, you know... I appreciate that you think that your opinion about climate change should outweigh the the, uh, the considered views based on evidence of the world's scientists. Yeah. But, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about the sheer practicalities and the practical cost and the effect on people's lives of achieving a target which will actually, which basic mathematics and science will tell you will have a virtually zero net effect on terms of the world's climate change. I think that's, you know, you massively overlooking the uh, the role of the UK on the international stage. You think, you think China is going to start... So if yeah. we, we don't have a third runway at Heathrow, China's going to rethink all its airports and building of new cities and all its pollution out, but it's going to go, do you know what? If Boris doesn't go ahead with that third runway at Heathrow, maybe we should change our entire economic I mean, policy. Do you really think that's going to happen? What I would say to you, Julia, is that you've got the mistaken premise that things can simply continue as they are if we don't do this. You know, the consequences of not acting on climate change are so much more harmful and damaging to the people of Britain than the consequences of acting on it. You know, most of the things that we need to do about climate change would improve people's lives today. Uh, rather than make them more difficult. Oh, no, I'm absolutely... I'm, no, I'm all in favour of the technical innovation. I'm all in favour of all of that, and I'm all in favour of you know, cleaner aircraft. And that, bringing it back to Heathrow, this is one of the things, isn't it, that the, 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 the airline manufacturers, the, the actual airplane manufacturers and the and Heathrow, and like, they're saying, look, we're getting cleaner and cleaner planes. I mean, certainly I've been on planes recently, just these brand-new planes, incredibly quiet, uh, the noise reduction, they're using less fuel because, of course, there's urge to use less fuel because of the... Cu- 
sheer cost of it, but also they are polluting less. In which case, shouldn't we rely on that sort of technological innovation rather than saying that you can't have a third runway because of pollution? Shouldn't we just make sure that requirements are you can have the third runway, but you need to cut the pollution, you need to cut the noise uh, and, and actually drive the innovation that way? So I don't disagree with innovation in the aerospace sector. And indeed, meeting our climate change targets will require an enormous amount of that to take place over the coming years, right? But the context here is that improvements in the sector, improvements in the technology and airspace movements and so on are being outstripped by growth in demand for air travel by a high rate of about five to one. And so, yes, the technology is improving, planes are getting cleaner, but so many more people are flying each year that um, it completely swamps the gains that we've made from the technology. And so this, this is why, if we expand Heathrow Airport, it will effectively make it, you know, that is a recipe for failing on climate change. It's a recipe for making it impossible to meet our, to our targets on this. Um, except, except that, you know, a lot of people do like flying now. More people are flying because they can afford to fly. Uh, because I mean, either businesses, we're having lots more international uh, links. Uh, again, the opening up of the markets in, in Asia and particularly in China as they've been boosted and dragging people out of poverty in those Asian countries, which is a good thing. We also see more people able to afford because of cut price at budget airlines to be able to go and get on a, a foreign holiday. Certainly in my day when I was a kid, you know, we went to Cornwall if you were lucky. Um, isn't it a good thing? that we've got these wonderful international links and more and more people from really ordinary backgrounds are able to actually experience foreign travel. Isn't that a good thing? Right. So, look, that's a nice story. But when you actually look at the data, where has the growth in air travel been coming from? Well, certainly at Heathrow and London airports, for a start, let's just debunk the idea that this is about international business travel because international business flights are in decline at Heathrow, same decline and across London airports. And in fact, across the UK, businesses have better things to do with executive time than sending them on jollies around the world. So that's, you know, that is a fiction which has been promoted by the airport. Oh, we need new routes to international markets. Look at the data. There is no pressure to expand coming from business travel, right? No, no, we're not. No, we're not talking about business executives going off on a jolly. We're we're talking about the ability to go and have meetings uh, and to make connections and also cargo transport. There is no growth in demand for business flights. There is no growth in demand for business flights. Look at the data. What it shows you is that the pressure to expand Heathrow is fundamentally about handling more and more international transfer passengers. Yeah. These are, they don't contribute anything to the UK economy. No, that's not, no, no, that's, Leo, that's, that's not true. It, that's not, no, being a, having a major hub airport in, in, in the, the UK is actually a key part of those flights existing at all uh, for our, for our, for us people to make contact with, instead of us having anyone who does have to do that international travel for work or for pleasure, having to sort of do, you know, traveling to Schiphol or to Paris or to, or to Berlin. It, the, the, this idea that it doesn't have a net positive effect on the British economy is quite untrue uh, that's uh, so look that's wrong and it's wrong it's re- very visibly wrong when you look at um, when you look at the fact that the uk has a 23 billion pound tourism deficit so even if you you t- right so the two pressures to expand Heathrow are one international transfer passengers growth in growth in those passengers which is just people getting off a plane even and getting on another plane yep. they're not doing business in the uk you know they're not no that that's not the economic benefit they bring as i just said but anyway carry on it, which is very indirect, right? The other, the other source of pressure to expand Heathrow is, um, is outbound leisure flights 
by people, uh, frequent flyers from London and the South East, who are overwhelmingly at the top of the income spectrum. Well, how so often? Literally, when you go... Well, you've made this argument that, um, that cheap air travel has, uh, has made flights accessible to people mm. who weren't able to do that before. Now, that's true during the 90s, right, when there was a very, very steep growth. You know, air travel has doubled since 19, or more than doubled. Um, that's true to an extent, but actually most of the growth in demand over that period has come from people who already flew, flying more and more often, buying second homes on the continent. Oh, buying so I mean, goodness me, but yeah. Do you know, I could do this with you for the next 20 minutes, but I've got to move on to another topic. But please come on again, or do come into the studio. Leo Murray, co-director of the Climate Campaign Group, Possible. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley-Brewer and The Times. Well-informed. Let's talk about something which uh, certainly makes, well, my next guest feel very good. Uh, talk Radio's film critic, Rebecca Perfect. You love your movies. I do indeed. She loves her movies. <laughs> I, I, I always prefer the stuff we get to see on our, on our sofas because I'm a I've bit lazy. i something for you so, as well. You Don't do worry. have something for me to Well, let's talk about your first film, Dark Waters. That's yes, out tomorrow. It is indeed. So it's based on true life events. It stars Mark Ruffalo, Anne Hathaway and Tim Robbins. And it basically follows the story of a lawyer who uh, uh, uncovers a dark secret that connects a growing number of unexplained deaths to one of the world's largest corporations. So this lawyer has, um, it's still an ongoing case. He's basically made this his life's work. It's, he's trying to expose the truth, but soon he finds himself risking his future, his family and his own life. They're hiding something. That chemical. What if you drank it? Drank it? It's like saying, what if I swallowed a tire? What if whatever's killing those cows is in the drinking water? That sounds good. It's a a true story. It's a true story. Yes, it is. I mean, you can do a lot of reading around this. So this is to do with a corporation called DuPont in the States. And they basically have been accused of poisoning the water in the surrounding areas. And initially it caused a number of cattle to be killed. um, And then suddenly you're realising that there are birth uh, deformities as well. And then cancer and things like that. So this is a documentation of what happened in the first part of this lawyer's kind of exploitation of this matter. So, I mean, it, is it sort of a, a very accurate representation of, sort of docu- documentary style? I mean, it st- sounds like they've done it, you know, full Hollywood blockbuster. Well, do you know what? The thing that I didn't like about this was it wasn't, it didn't feel like it's been given enough artistic licence. There's a lot of courtrooms, a lot of offices, a lot of rooms with boxes in which he's going through a lot of paperwork. And actually, when you're watching a movie like this unfold, you kind of want to see something a little bit more dramatic. And the cast is amazing. So Mark Ruffalo, we've seen him in something somewhat similar in Spotlight, which is a brilliant film um, and then Anne Hathaway who I think unfortunately is a little bit wasted as the wife in this but you know when you put together a yeah. great cast great sort of storyline you think awards it was yeah. actually out in awards season but, it's but not, didn't really hit it's not quite Aaron Brockovich no, no not okay. at all, all right. well, let's, well you gave that three stars yeah, three okay. and a half out of five I mean she's tight but three out of five uh, three and a half stars out of five you gave to the next one also out on Friday and um, this is Downhill this sounds like a lot of fun and rather yes. appropriate given that it is actually well it was sleeting outside my window. I think it's, it's now proper definitely snow. Definitely snowing. Yes. yes. And I think I'm you might have... have a very happy 13 year old later. <laughs> Get the sledge out. Well, speaking of sledges, um, if you've been wondering where Will Ferrell has been of late, because uh, we haven't really seen him on our screens, I made a joke earlier that since 2003, really, <laughs> we've really seen him. But um, he's actually back in, in this movie Downhill. It's a story of a family on a ski trip. Um, and as the ski trip progresses, it starts to show up the cracks in the relationship between the mother and father. It looked like it was going to kill us. For a moment. the kids were screaming because it felt like we were going to die. Pete, 
Wow. And I look over at Pete, and he had grabbed his phone. Pete left us. I, now, I have to say, as somebody who's just come back from skiing, I've been, yes. I, it's been a long journey to get into skiing for me. I okay. said the very first ski trip my husband and I did, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend. We broke up for two <gasps> weeks afterwards. So I, I understand, <laughs> I understand how bad for a relationship ski trips can be. Well, I, do you know what? One of my main points about this movie is that I think it, it's completely relatable. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going on a family trip and your mum and dad start squabbling and arguing yeah. and that kind of escalates, this is basically And then what you're it cold is. and falling down a mountain. <laughs> So what happens here is that there's um, they have controlled avalanches on this uh, mountain, and is that a good thing? I don't I don't really know, but it happens, and one goes a little bit too far, and instead of protecting his family, Will Ferrell's character kind of grabs his phone and runs and so his wife wow. is going you left us as we heard in that clip just then and it's kind of how that sort of escalates everything else within their relationship this is a much more subtle comedy for Will Ferrell than I uh, normally associate himself with um, it also stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus who um, is the most probably the most Emmy-laden comedian in the States we'll recognise her from Veep Saturday yeah. Night Live and also Seinfeld you've got two comedy masters in this so it's not the kind of comedy you expect from Will Ferrell it's very funny because it's it's so relatable. And for me, I was really surprised by it. I was going in going, it's, oh, and it's at one hour, 26 minutes. And we, we, always like that. we always like a short film. We always like a short film. No, that sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, Will Ferrell is a genius. And much, I think his stuff is much cleverer than yes. he often gets credit yeah. for. Um, let's also talk about if you're too lazy or frankly, it's sleeting or snowing too much or just, you know, raining too much where you are. Uh, Amazon Prime yes. have also got uh, something you reckon's worth watching. Yeah, so series one of their new big show and it's called Hunters stars Al Pacino it's set in 1977 in New York City um, it, I have to say it looks like a Tarantino movie it's amazing the first episode's an hour and a half long it follows um, the vi some vigilantes who are hunting hundreds of high-ranking Nazi officials who are basically hiding undercover in the US and trying to conspire to create a fourth Reich I mean, they are getting some serious big names aren't they I watched The Morning Show yeah. really enjoyed The Morning yeah, Show which you morning recommended that was from, from Amazon yeah. Prime it's, uh, uh, that's actually oh, Apple that's Apple, Apple TV oh I yeah. lose track someone just, someone just clicks something on the telly <laughs> I don't know. I don't have to pay attention this to this This is stuff. great, though. I have to That's say, I watched the first episode, which is like a movie. It's brilliant. Oh, it's, it's Al Pacino. Yeah, I know. And he he is fantastic in this. Um, Logan Lerman, as well, is brilliant as the lead in this as well. You've got a great cast. It looks stylistically, it yep. looks amazing. And it's it's loosely based on real-life Nazi hunters as well. So it's fascinating Incredible. at the same time. So, Excellent. yeah, a really good one to brilliant. watch. There's something for everyone there. there. We love that. There. Thank you very much indeed. Talk Radio's film critic, Rebecca Perfect. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer. Weekday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.